Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Balitic, and today we are truly honoured and blessed to have with us Elizabeth Farrelly. Dr Elizabeth Farrelly, trained in architecture and philosophy, practised in Auckland, London and Bristol, holds a PhD in urbanism from the University of Sydney and is a former associate professor practice at the University of New South Wales Graduate School of Urbanism. Born in Dunedin, New Zealand, she has made Sydney her home since the late 1980s. Um, Dr. Farrelly is the author of several books, um, one of which we'll discuss today, but uh, they include Three Houses, a 1993 monograph on renowned architect Glenn Merkitt, and Blubberland, The Dangers of Happiness. She's a Walkley shortlisted journalist, critic, and essayist, and served as a councillor for the City of Sydney from 1991 to 1995. Her portrait by Mira Whale was a finalist in the 2015 Archibald Prize at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and she is currently building a passive off-grid dwelling in rural New South Wales. Wow. Um, welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Elizabeth Farrelly. Uh, hi, Franco. Uh, thank you for all that. <laughs> that. That was a short version of, 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 of Yes, that's right. There's a longer version, but uh, I don't think we have the time. So, okay, before we get on to your latest book, Killing Sydney, The Fight for the City Soul, which is a fantastic book, I've got to say, um, and we'll get into that, but I've yeah. got to ask, ask you, what are you working on now um, in terms of the built environment? I mean... Are you still doing the passive off-grid dwelling thing? Yes. Look, that that's a slow project. And it's, I mean, that's more, I suppose, I have to think of it as more pleasure than work. But, um, uh, I'm, you know, <laughs> at the moment, I'm sort of halfway, it's half, well, I mean, it's half built. It's closed in. It's waterproof. Um, and actually, thankfully, mouseproof, which is a very good thing um, at the moment in rural New South Wales. But, um, yeah, so we're still trying to get, builders you know who are not frantically busy and all that sort of stuff so waiting for things to happen we have some plumbing though so that's a start ah plumbing that is plumbing is good apparently apparently that was the bedrock of, of the of, of the british empire plumbing <laughs> i believe it <laughs> okay elizabeth i shall read you something i okay. won't tell you who wrote this because i've forgotten but it doesn't matter and, <laughs> and, and i'll ask you a question okay so quote when elizabeth farrelly first arrived in sydney it was love at first sight but since untrammeled development, privatisation of public land and political corruption has ir irreparably damaged this once great city. Okay, end of quote. So, dare I say, it looks like your relationship with the Harbour City is a bit like a bit like your namesake, Elizabeth Taylor, um, and her husband, <laughs> Richard Burton. So, you <laughs> fall in love, you've fallen out of love. You're married again to the same person. Uh, but now you're kind of also open to something better if it comes along. Is that where you are at the moment with Sydney? Well, yes, look, I think it is a little bit like a kind of an abusive relationship. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's kind of like this time I really am leaving. You've really done it. And then, oh, maybe, maybe you didn't really mean it. Maybe I still love you. You know, that kind of, there is something of that. And, um, but people keep saying to me, you know, I, I thought you left. And I think, uh, look, I tried. I, I have tried to leave. I've tried once or twice. Perhaps I haven't tried hard enough. But honestly, I still think it's beautiful. And I still think there's enough of what I love about Sydney left to make it worth, you know, having a go <laughs> still. Okay. Um, okay. So speaking of love, while we're mm. on that subject, there is not much love lost. 
between you and the forces of redevelopment, Sydney, you know, and we know who we're going <laughs> Um, no names mentioned, unless you want to mention them. Um, this includes, <laughs> of course, <laughs> the New South Wales government and past and present um, prime ministers, um, well-known developer barons. That, that we call them bar developer barons of the eighteen nineties, and even some some architects. So, um, yeah. look, what is it, in your opinion, that lies? And, and I'm going to ask you. This is the how long's a piece of string mm. kind of question. But what to distill everything down into this sort of I guess, manageable core. What is it that, in your opinion, lies at the heart of everything that is wrong with cities development or overdevelopment, as I call it, if, if I can put it that way? Um, well, look, that, uh, just to start with the overdevelopment term, which, which, of course, is something that springs very quickly to everybody's lips. And, and that is a really interesting question about how much is too much, you know, and obviously some development needs to happen or some new building needs to happen depending on whether you call it development um, but if you have to pinpoint a single core problem I suppose it comes back to a failure of government and a failure I think it's a it's a kind of enduring and repeated failure of Australian governments um, especially I think we do government really badly here and probably always have um, but I also think it's got worse uh, and, mo and most of the worseness <laughs> um, over the last 20 years, I would put down to neoliberalism or Thatcherism, however you want to describe um, that sort of neoconservative push to reduce everything, everything to dollar value. And that's had so many different effects throughout a built environment, which I th think we will live to regret. Interesting. Um, there was a similar thing said recently about the current issues that the current LNP government, uh, federal government has. Mm. Um, and everyone, well, everybody, a number of people said that they blame John Howard. And, <laughs> and, and, and I'm bringing this up for, for, for a particular purpose. The actual um, uh, line, I think, of, of John Howard's was um, something about we're comfortable. And so yeah. <laughs> damn everyone else. <clears throat> and they sort of, our problems in politics to this day kind of, almost stem from that that uh, mentality. Is that also the same with, with development, how we also approach the environment in Sydney, how we how we approach it, and, you know, and obviously gender issues and, and, and you know, minority issues and, and Indigenous issues and whatnot. Is, is, is that, could that, could that um, I guess that, 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 I guess almost need to be comfortable be behind that? Um, yes, look, uh, actually I would have, I thought, the, the comfy bloody country thing was hawk, um, you know, but I mean, and I think that there is something to be said uh, um, for that as a core, well, as a factor, in the sense that I think it stops us um, getting engaged and getting militant enough to protest. That's So it's an inhibition on us as a voting populace, I guess, in terms of making these things issues that matter electorally. Um, but I, but I think behind that, and probably more significant, like that makes us kind of smug and kind of yeah. lazy, and um, it means we don't do much about the things we should do something about. And, except that now people are getting finally at last, and possibly slightly too late, getting uncomfortable. I think about how much and how bad um, development, the development is that's happening at the moment, and how much is being destroyed in that interest and, and how much less good 
what replaces it is. So all the sort of, it's not, it's not always that what is destroyed is good, but what comes in its place is so much worse uh, as a general rule and in most people's opinions. And so that's, I think that's beginning to bite. I think that people are starting to realise everywhere I go at the moment, I've been doing a lot of book talks and, you know, I was in Avalon and I've been in Double Bay and going to North Sydney and Cremorne. Everywhere you go, people are really worried about what's happening to the city and what they can do. Um, but, you know, that's that sort of, so that comfortableness um, is is our problem as citizens, but our other problem, our bigger problem is um, the betrayal by government of the public interest, which after all is their only job. I mean, it's the only reason they're there is to look after the, you know, the long-term broad scale overall public interest and they're not doing it. Your book, Killing Sydney, um, it's, it's kind of, someone call it part love song, part warning. Mm. Uh, and to get on, to, to sort of segue in what you said about the politics, little by little, um, the politics is becoming debased. I would mm. probably say they, they already are debased, but regardless, and our mm. environment degraded. Um, mm. Is the tipping point close? Um, I, I, I don't want to sort of say, oh, well, what year are we, are we going to go over the cliff? Because, I mean, I've, I find that a bit a bit you know, glib to be you know, asking people dates, but is the tipping <laughs> point close? You mean in terms of the city or in terms of we're talking climate change? Here? Oh, no, in, in the city specifically. City. Yeah. Look, I don't know. I... Um... It's an interesting concept, the tipping point. I'm not, you know, the tipping, I'm not sure that that's really, I suppose eventually there does come a point at which it's really too late and maybe we call that the tipping point. Um, but uh, for me, it hasn't come yet. I don't know. I think there's still hope. Um, it For me, it depends very much. I'm, I'm currently looking for a house to live in. <laughs> And quite a lot of uh, how bearable it turns out to be is um, where I can actually, where I can inhabit in Sydney. Because, of course, Sydney is so big and so dense now that you tend to live in your little village. And I've been very privileged, I think, in my life in Sydney up to now because I've always lived and been able to live, um, not because I was wealthy, because because I was lucky and there was just, you know, time, the history, um, right in the middle. So I've lived in... Redfern and Surrey Hills and um, Camperdown. Uh, and now I'm in Lewisham, which is the furthest out I've ever been. Uh, and it's not it's not so much snobbery that it's more about I love the old bits and I love the bits where you can still walk all the time because that's what I do with my life. And I tend to work from home and I live quite a village lifestyle. And it seems to me that um, that's a really lovely way to live in a global city is as if it's a series of tiny little villages or quite small villages and sweet villages. And, and that that is still a possibility for Sydney. We still, even now, we could react to COVID in particular, um, either of two ways, it seems to me. You could go, okay, we all hate each other now. We're all terrified that there are going to be too many germs around. We can't be close to each other. We can't do community stuff. We can't do busy streets anymore. We can't do pubs and blah, blah, blah. So we're just going to do, you know, more sprawl, more suburbs, more um, open space, and therefore more climate change. And to me, that's really a really boring uh, response. And because it's the response based in fear and sort of back to the future. So I think that would be a bad way to go for lots of different reasons. Um, but the other option is that we all start to say, you know what, we've discovered that we can work from home and we can live a smaller, more um, walking kind of 
10 minute lifestyle. We can shop locally three times a week by foot instead of twice, once every two weeks by car. We can do those things and it's actually fun and we can talk to people in the shops and that's fun and high streets are fun and the village thing is fun and we like that. And I think a lot of people have started to live more that way in um, during COVID. And so look, I think the jury's still out really as to which way we'll go. funny you use the term village where I'm from. It's actually the originary term. Let's just call it community-minded suburbia. How's that? It's in Victorian <laughs> Lewisham. Um, I grew up in Summer Hill. Oh, that's before, right. It, before it was trendy. <laughs> Everybody says that. <laughs> yeah, before yeah. it had that so-called village feel, you know, back in yes. the old days when, yes. the, when we had things like milk bars. But, yes. uh, so you, you're actually... In Killing Sydney, you 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 kind of dismiss modern suburbia, which I guess it's an American uh, sort of invention, as, as are mm. most things really. Mm. Um, and you actually, from what I can notice, there's very little opportunity for redemption for sub- <laughs> for suburbia from you. Um, but, <laughs> so you, and and, I, and I, I noticed you don't like McMansions. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, I was gonna I was gonna say you should come out to the west. Anyway, um, I was gonna, the question I'm going to ask you is: You've mentioned village, um, and or community monastery, whatever you want to call it. What does it actually look? What does it really look like? I mean, I I, I know what Summer Hill looks like. Mm. I know what other you know inner city sub. I've worked in Surrey Hills. I know what that looks like. Mm. But it's not something that is it something that people aspire to, or is it something that people would like? to have but don't really want to live there <laughs> um look i can't speak for most people honestly um i've never really felt that i had my finger on the popular pulse um but i do think look i don't think that um it's that there are no sort of villages as it were out in western sydney that there are lots of places that have been villages um campbelltown camden there are lots of and and, and they are places that have fairly old centres as a rule, partly because, you know, 100 years ago was when we built places, built habitats for ourselves that were um, tended to be reasonably dense. And there were lots of reasons for that. Part of it was sort of, you know, English-based habit where people built terrace houses when they first came, um, invaded this country. Uh, but there are lots of reasons. And, and those terrace houses are a very good model for ways a way to live which is reasonably dense and reasonably modest in terms of size and carbon footprint and quite walkable. And because it's quite dense, you know, um, A, it, it allows a walking lifestyle, which means that there are enough people um, forming a catchment for the local milk bar and the local cinema and, and so on that, so that you can walk to those things. Uh, but it also, because the houses are relatively small and not always tiny, um, you tend to live a little bit less in private and a little bit more in public and to share things like swimming pools and libraries and so on, which might otherwise be in the backyard. And, um, and that fosters a sense of community. So it's not that suburbia is evil, but it is unsustainable in, in a number of ways, one of which is it's, it's always 
car-dependent, sort of irretrievably car-dependent, and that means, you know, carbon footprint and climate change. But also it eats up um, fertile farmland, as we're now seeing out in uh, sort of southwest of Cabletown down near Appen. So, and it's happening everywhere, and Melbourne's doing it too, more greenfield sprawl when we actually know that that's so much the wrong thing to do. So, and it, but it also separates people, you know, it stops them connecting quite as well and quite as thoroughly. So I think there are lots and lots of reasons for encouraging slightly denser living. But the trouble is people hear the word density and they see towers, they see high rise, and that's what people don't like, usually. I mean, some people do, and I've lived in towers and it can be fine, but broadly speaking, that's what they're resistant to. Is there almost a, 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 an undercurrent or a theme here of like... Um you know, a sort of a more European model versus a more American or Asian model? Or is that just, is that just um, how, it, how, it, how, it's, how it seems? Well, look, it depends what you mean by those terms. Uh, there are lots of European models which are interesting in terms of providing density without necessarily height. And there are parts of London, like um, I think of those lovely squares, we you know, with big mature gardens in the middle and six or eight stories around the edge and public streets, but the garden itself is private, although the public get to see it and enjoy the fact of these huge chestnut trees and things. So that's a lovely way to do it. Barcelona does it differently. Um, Paris does it differently. Again, sort of eight stories of buildings built as apartments, whereas the British ones are often built as terraces to begin with. But uh, honestly, look, it's not a question. I mean, when you say Asian, what you mean is, contemporary Asian cities, which is high rise and and in the way it's done high rise, not entirely, but largely speaking, pretty brutal. So there's a sort of totalitarian feel to those cities. And it's not because they're Asian. It's because <clears throat> they went straight from, you know, one story kind of mazes of hutongs and things that we think in Beijing to 50 story <laughs> towers and it was like whew, and the and the pace of that change and the brutality of it cultural change as much as physical change has left people I think quite traumatized in many cases so but that was a move to what what I've characterized as the North American city model which is this idea that you have a big sprawl of suburbia and in the middle you have a whole lot of high-rise towers now it um it doesn't have to you don't have to, don't have to, it doesn't have to be so stark, I don't think, the choice. You can have um, medium density, which is not high rise and which, but which is quite dense. Um, and there are lots of different ways of formatting the actual buildings so that you maintain interesting streets and good little public places and lots of little parks and, you know, places where people actually like to be and can feel that it's home. So I think. It's a bit stark to say, is this American versus Europe? But those are the those are sort of where the models came from. And it's more about traditional versus um, 20th century, I think, than really the countries themselves. In some ways, I mean, after reading a lot of your columns in the Herald and whatnot, and, and also your book, your latest book, um, in some ways, you're a bit like Cassandra, aren't you? The, the Princess of <laughs> Troy. Um, who reported <laughs> apparently. Didn't she jump off the cliff or something? <laughs> no, we're, we're not, that part of it we're not going to talk about, but <laughs> blessed, though, with the gift of foreseeing the future. Um, <laughs> her curse was that no one believed her. Yes. Um, a fact which ended up with, well, we know what happened with Troy. Troy got yeah. done over, 
Yes. And, and no one actually really knows even where it is. So yeah. um, is suburban Sydney a bit like Troy? And will the home that you that you still profess to love, um, <laughs> will, will it survive? Um, I don't know the answer to that, I suppose. I, you know, for all that I, I, I mean, I do, yes, warn of bad change. And, and I mean, I've been saying this for such a long time that the things I've been saying, I can now see around me. <laughs> I feel like saying, oh, my God, I told you so. But, um, look, I, I, I think some of what I love will survive in Sydney because I think enough people love it to protect it. I could easily be wrong. I might end up, you know, having to go and live in Bendigo. <laughs> um, it's interesting to me that Victoria does small towns. I've never lived in a small town, so I don't even know if I can do that. But but Victoria is much better at doing towns in a way that, that um, to my mind, that is charming and they, they're quite pretty and quite walkable, but also have a sense of, um, for want of a better word, culture. You know, they have things like bookshops and art galleries and stuff that's fun to do. So um, whereas New South Wales towns, we've tend to given over to sort of chain stores and same old, same old, so they just all become indistinguishable, which I think is a shame. Um, but whether this, you know, this lovely messed up um, crazy sort of heart and soul of Sydney that I feel so much so protective about and so much in love with um, will survive. Look, I can only say I really hope so. And I think when I when I hear people talk and say, I want to help, I want to be part of this. Um, I think yes, absolutely we can make it survive. But when but when I see government, you know, say, you know what, we're going to have a review of the Heritage Act and we're going to make it even easier to break all the rules. In fact, not even sure there are going to be any rules. They're just going to be guidelines. So, you know, that's that suffers a betrayal. And we, we should be marching in the streets about this. We should be doing that. Whether anyone cares enough at that point when it's still quite abstract and, and quite distant to to change, um, I, I don't know. I hope so. They did in the 70s, though, didn't they, with Jack? Yes. Green bands and whatnot. I mean, they, yes. they, they seem to have cared. I mean, I can only imagine what the rocks... <laughs> yes, exactly. Like now, yeah, yeah. About those demonstrations. Um, yeah. Do you think maybe that perhaps we don't care anymore? <laughs> um, look, it's possible that people are now so, that our lives are so virtual and we spend so much time just watching TV and being on our computers and all that stuff that we don't care about the physical fact of the city. I frankly find that impossible to believe. Um, because I think, and I think that's another thing that COVID has probably taught us, which is that the physical nature of home and the sense, um, not just the comfort, but the sense of interest and enjoyment and stimulus and, and fun and connectedness that, that that habitat can give you when you spend a lot of your time there, those things matter. I think those things really matter. I walk around the streets here and I every time it was funny little humble Lewisham and you know instead of walking on the main streets because they're all traffic I walk the back streets to the railway station or something or to the pool and I think oh this is really sweet I really love these funny little houses and the funny little streets and the the quite modest um self-effacing 
mindset that sits behind that stuff. And I honestly, when I look at these big buildings out the window here um, by developers who will remain unnamed, uh, I think there's nothing modest about this. That You know, the message that these buildings give is... Um, I'm going to insist that you live in a very small, tight, mean, eight-foot ceiling place, but meanwhile, I'm making an awful lot of money out of this, and it's, isn't it great? So so there's a kind of um, inbuilt, almost a class system happening here, which we need to be on top of. I mean, there is there's this, you know, it's demonstrated, we know across the world that neoliberalism has produced increased inequality at every level and in every way and in every country where it's practised. And that is happening here. And this is the built form of it that we're looking at. So I think we just need to recognize that these things have meaning and that mass development, which has huge profits for some people and misery for an awful lot of others, is not the only way of building things. It's just not the only way of getting houses happening. There are other things we can do. You know, there are there are cooperative possibilities. You can do nightingale developments. There are lots of ways of getting together and taking control back and re-envisioning your own neck of the woods in a way that's lovely and that can happen we but we have to be prepared to be bold and be loud and take control back to the community i think i'm branko melodic thanks for listening to talking architecture and design brought to you in association with the architecture and design network the A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. Interesting. You, you write um, in, in Killing Sydney that, um, that we're disguising, which is what you were just saying now, we're disguising moral aesthetic values and numbers, dollars, and traffic flow density and population. Mm. Um, we pursue excellence in swimming and football, but not in anything that actually shapes our future. Yeah. <laughs> that is actually very true. Um, and, and maybe that's also a facet of neoliberalism. So let's pretend that you're given tabula rasa, you know, mm. black slate, <laughs> land area, I'll give you that magic wand mm. that I got from Harry Potter. And how <laughs> would you redesign this city for it to um, better align with, with, with your vision? <laughs> well, that's a, that wouldn't that be fun? A chance and, and wouldn't I'm, that be great? And yeah. I'm sending this to Rob Stokes. Don't, don't worry about yeah. that. But okay. I mean, seriously, though, how, 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 would you, how would you do it? Well, look, I think there are um, probably half a dozen or something. I don't have a list here, but I can work my way through, through it probably. Um, uh, different kinds of mechanisms. One, and it's perhaps this is starting at the wrong end thing that I would do, is I'd, I'd start trying to teach everybody about design and a particular urban design and I would be teaching it to six-year-olds you know in in primary schools I think I honestly think it's not difficult to understand that there are streets that are lovely to be in and streets that are horrible Um, and children feel this stuff they recognize nice places and we should be cultivating that mindset in our populace, because in the end, with the democracy, the only way of getting decent places is um, changing people's hearts and minds, and that happens through education. So I'd be doing that at sort of one end of the scale, um, but of course also reforming the way government goes about governing the built environment. So, um, well, we do things like end negative gearing, and we would try to do uh, a number of, um, I suppose, financial. Um, 
things to try to ensure that, or try to, to discourage the idea that your house or your dwelling is principally an investment and to encourage um, the contrary thought that it's actually a place to live, that it's really about who you are and what you want and the kind of complex animal that you are and the kind of complex little culture that you live in. So that it was just to sort of shift that emphasis slightly towards um, more reflection, more kind of um, what's it called? Embodied mind, embodied thought, embodied thinking. That idea I think is very useful. Um, and I would encourage, uh, um, so government will be set up and to not to be so fearful as it is now. And I think governments, we have a terribly frightened of people who actually know anything. So you'd have government that had people who were actually heritage aspects, uh, experts, um, making the judgments about the heritage list instead of a whole lot of people who've been cowed and intimidated for 25 years by ministers who threatened to sack them if they're actually making decisions. So you'd have a heritage council that actually had heritage experts in charge of it. I mean, shock horror, um, in the same way that you'd have scientists doing proper stuff with climate change. And you'd have, and you'd, um, I would do the same thing with beauty. I would try, rather than trying to make rules about beauty, which I think is impossible and counterproductive, I would encourage um, everybody from engineers to architects to politicians to be, to, to learn, to discuss beauty. Because at the moment we go, beauty, that's just, that's personal, um, which means like we all have our own view of beauty, so we can't talk about it. So instead of that, I'd say, yes, no, actually we can talk about it. It's not that personal. You know, basically we agree. We, we buy, you know, iPhones because they're beautiful. That's, you know, they're way too expensive, but they're beautiful. So we buy them. We like beautiful things and we can agree mostly about things that are beautiful. And we, we know that we love, for example, you know, biophilia is a real thing. We love trees with streets in them. That's not difficult. So let's let's talk about what makes things and places beautiful. Let's have that conversation and do it publicly and make some sort of criteria, some criteria about public spaces and what we want. And then I would make sure that government in any development, take, for example, Barangaroo, which is quite a good example because it's huge, but also, well, I mean, there's any number of really big ones happening at the moment, um, Central Station. Government should be saying, so this is where the public space is going to be. This is the kind of space it will be. This is the quality. We're going to be, this going to be defined by planting or defined by buildings, or, you know, there's going to be planting in the middle and then buildings around the outside or whatever it's going to be like. So that should be a public discussion. And then decisions are made possibly by juries, which are appointed um, by sortition, random, random appointment rather than by politicians, because then you get a kind of general view. So those in principle things are done by government and then only once, and this is where the streets are gonna go and this is where the street furniture will be and we will do all those things. And then once all those decisions are made in the public interest, only then are developers allowed to say, to have you know those parcels of land. So these six or seven or 10 or 20 parcels of land are now given over to development. And these are the, the sort of mass and bulk rules that govern that. So this height or that footprint and but but i wouldn't have aesthetic rules at all i would just say um we're going to do the aesthetic stuff about the public spaces and you guys it doesn't matter really in the end how bad you are except you have to abide by um rules about things that we think matter like overshadowing or which is height and wind speed and so on but if you can do all that and the public health stuff like 
windows and bathrooms, I think, should be mandatory, for example. Um, if you can do all that, then you can do whatever you like and whatever you can actually sell. So the market controls private development within those bounds, but only those things. And so you never get a situation where 25 hectares of public space is given to, you know, Lendlease or, or Mervac or anyone else to make decisions about where the streets go and what the streets are like. Uh, so I think government needs to be much more active and much more confident and much more highly <laughs> educated, but then the rules themselves should be much simpler. So I should then apologize. I shouldn't have actually compared you to Cassandra. You're actually more Jane Jacobs, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> yes. You, you actually <laughs> Thank you. Her, you actually reference her, her in, uh, you know, in, your, in your book, The American Critic of the, of, or New York of the, Yes. She was called Jane Jacobs. She was. Um, and she was one for making cities livable. Mm. Um, is it just nature that we need to bring into our lives? Is it, is it the fact that we need more space? Is it less a nihilistic attitude that we have towards, as you said, house should not be an investment. It should be a, a place where you live, grow, and your yeah. family grows. It, it's not really planning, but that we need to change it's, it's the way it's ourselves isn't it in the end look i think you know the way the book is structured it starts off with sort of density and it ends up with um governance but also questions of psychology and if you like spirit or kind of moral questions um so it goes from the fairly concrete to the fairly abstract um and i i i mean in the end in fact, someone, John McInerney said to me the other day, this isn't really a book about urban design. This is a book about, um, you know, morality and spiritual stuff. And I'm going, yeah, but I think they're the same thing. Um, because in the end, everything we do is about who we are, you know, and, and the place that we make for ourselves should above all be about who we are. And it's, I mean, it can't help but reflect the kinds of people we are. And the moment, the kind of environment that we're, saying we're happy with um, reflects quite badly on who we are. It suggests that we have quite low expectations of ourselves in terms of our, you know, our kind of autonomy as beings and our sense of self-respect and, and our demands for beauty and our demands for the things we love, like nature and like heritage and so on. So I think... Um, Yes, it is. It is about who we are. And it's about recognizing that who we are is not just driven by self-interest or by profit. Those things, of course, matter. Um, and ego and, um, you know, what's good for me and what's good for my kids is important, but it's not the only thing that matters. And we have other parts of ourselves. We have, and we have other parts of what we value. So that, so those the other softer, more open, more porous parts of ourselves are the parts that do things like loving nature and loving beauty for their own sakes. And though it's those values which are regarded as kind of soft by neoliberalism. And so it's those, those things that get trashed, um, you know, when, when important things like money come into play. So when, when necessity kicks in, like when you've got to have something really important like Westconnex, which is terribly important because you know, you've got to get very fast from the North Shore to the airport. Um, and so, of course, you've got to put an eight-lane motorway through Haberfield. You know, so so, so when, um, 
important things like motorways or making money or business or kind of boy things kick in, then all those soft kind of girly things like nature and beauty and um, nice houses and pretty streets are just seen as being dispensable. And so we just carve bits off parks like Sydney Park and and put holes through places like Haverfield, which was a listed heritage, much loved suburb, um, just to put a road through. I mean, what? And it's not even a road that anyone especially uses. And if you do use it and come in from the Western suburbs, you pay $26 every time you come into the city. What? That's nuts. That's not about public good. That's about private profit. So, so this idea that you just carve bits off the sort of the things that people love for the sake of, you know, the captains of industry, I just think we have to start really questioning that because trickle down is bullshit. It doesn't happen. What they're doing is trickle up. What they're doing is stealing our lives and our love for their own benefit. And that's wrong. And we should stick up for ourselves. It's interesting that you that outlook, um, you know, is is well. I, I think it's becoming more and more prevalent, to be honest. Mm. With you. Um, but there is something about education, isn't there? And you mentioned this earlier. But, um, not just educating, you know, architects, but educating kids. Mm. I mean, you studied philosophy along with, with with architecture and whatnot. So there's that aspect. I remember having this con- another conversation recently about physics, and they I, I, someone asked me what what. I didn't hate to see it, and I said, "Oh, well, blah blah blah." In physics, yeah, I hated physics. If I had to know <laughs> that Immanuel Kant actually yeah. was was also a scientist who did all, all sorts of astronomical things, yeah, and, and a philosopher, if they had to combine those two, yes, physics would have been a little bit more palatable. <laughs> the issue of education um, is that the panacea for neoliberalism. <laughs> I think education is our best hope for the future. Uh, um, I mean, I'm not sure that it can happen quickly enough. You know, it's a bit of a slow burn thing, education. But uh, I would be, yes, I would be absolutely teaching. And I would revolutionise everything that we teach and the way that we teach it, especially in New South Wales, which I think it's almost as if we try to make things boring for children. I don't know. What is that? Like, when my kids were at school... I nearly took them out of school because she, one of my daughters was in year seven and she's going, we have to study the scientific method. And I'm going, oh, what is that? And she says, well, it's really boring. It's this. And I think this is a kid who was designed to love science. She's an absolute biology maniac. And all you had to do was say, you know what? This is the anatomy of a butterfly. Look at how it works. Isn't it amazing? And she would have been right in there. They would have had her for life. And instead of that, they did their best to bore her to tears. And it's the same, I think it's the same with literature. We we teach it partly because of this push to, and this is a neoliberal thing as well, to standardise everything, to make everything box tickable across all of the years and all of the schools and all the institutions in the whole state so that nobody actually has to be a good teacher because they just go according to the boxes and the, and the rubrics. Um, which is stupid, obviously, um, but but the upshot of that is that education has got really boring, and it and to do really well, to write a really good English essay that gets really good marks, 
you just have to be boring. And if you write anything that's interesting, like if you were James Joyce in the English class at the moment, you would fail because you're not ticking the boxes. You, you would not get, you're not going by the formula. And so that's, that is just so wrong. It is so wrong. Sorry, we've veered off design onto much more general stuff, but I think it, it's, I mean, philosophy, when I studied it, was all about, you know, the reason I loved it was because it was about what does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to live a good life? What is that? And what? how do we know what exists? How do we know anything? That stuff is fascinating. But if you study philosophy now, it's, they don't ask those questions. They ask the really technical kind of minutiae questions. And I just think we've wandered off the path in, in education. I don't know what is in it for us to make it dull. But I think that's, yeah, so that needs to be fixed. <laughs> well, <laughs> Fixing the whole world here. No, 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 that's, it's, it's actually all, all, all connected. Uh, going back onto the path of the book of Killing mm. um, how has the book been, um, I guess, um, received by the industry? I know a lot of architects I've spoken to um, uh, found it fascinating. I loved it. Um, in fact, you know, wax lyrical, as it were, over it. I know um, Lord Mayor of Sydney, Clover Moore, said it, uh, said it was fantastic. And um, she, she said uh, she strongly agrees, which is, uh, I think is a very good thing coming from Clover Moore. Um, <laughs> how, how has the industry received it? Because I know, I know that you have, you have as, many, as many followers as you have detractors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Look, it's, I, that's a really hard question for me to answer. I don't suppose I really know how it's been received. I know that there are, I mean, I'm currently engaged in lots of talks around the place. Um, most of those are not what you would call industry. I'm a bit allergic to that word, by the way, but the design professions, I mean, there are lots of architects who come along and that's great. And um, it's probably quite hard for me to judge how many people really agree or, or support or find it interesting um, because they, I suppose they won't necessarily say if they don't. <laughs> uh, and there have been some reviews, some of which are good and some of which are a bit lukewarm probably. But um, yeah, look, I mean, it, it seems, it, I think that my purpose for the book is was twofold. One is just simply just try and clearly say what I think um, and believe about this city and about cities in general. And the other was to probably to try to get people to see that and provoke discussion. Um, I'm not sure that it's terribly important to me that people agree. It's more probably more interesting and more important if people, if a debate starts to happen and a conversation can, can spin off this book and I suppose, and off other things, including what's happening around the place, so that we could actually have some debate. Because one of the things that I really miss, um, and I think that the UK, for example, does much better than we do, is that public, uh, really robust, uh, cut and thrust public debate. We tend to, I think in, in Australia, certainly in Sydney, to whinge a lot in private, um, you know, in the pub or something, and, and not to say those things very loudly or very clearly in our public lives. And I think that's, it should probably be the other way around. We should be much more forthright in public and we should be much more tolerant um, in order to enable that forthright discussion to happen. But at the moment, virtually no one will say virtually anything um, and virtually everybody I interview 
wants to be off the record because, you know, everybody thinks that there's going to be some sort of retribution if they have any public public opinion at all. And I think that's a real loss because you can't have a culture if people won't speak. I've got to say, so on that point, in 100 years from now, Elizabeth, when some yeah. historian listens to this podcast <laughs> decides and decides to do a historical perspective on, on yeah. Elizabeth Farrelly, yeah. <laughs> what do you think they will say about you? <laughs> well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I have absolutely no idea. They might say, God, she was right. Possibly we should have listened. Or they might say, what an idiot. Um, or they might say, um, they might say, you know, she was saying this and actually it was happening anyway. That change was happening anyway. I don't know. Look, it's really, I find that sort of historical perspective almost impossible to anticipate. I I mean, I love reading history. And one of the reasons I love reading it is that um, you realise that life has always been bloody awful for most people. And so it's kind of comforting <laughs> to think, oh, you know, the sense of hopelessness that we might have um, is not new. But whether, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to know which way the future was going to go. My feeling is I, I'm hopelessly, I'm not necessarily optimistic, but for some reason I do feel persuaded that life will go on, the human race will persist, uh, we will manage climate change in a way that means that we don't end up in the what I think would be the absolute worst case scenario where we just, you know, where, where civilization ends and everything just becomes one long kind of machine gun war, which is entirely possible. Um, and that we come to our senses in time, maybe because people like me are writing things like this, uh, maybe partly because of that, to to avert that kind of catastrophe, you know, because I really like my grandson, who's three, to be able to have grandchildren. <laughs> I'd really like that. I won't ever know whether it's going to happen, um, but that's okay. But I just go around, you know, planting trees and planting words, I suppose, in that hope. Elizabeth Farrelly, you are the eternal optimist. <laughs> yes. Killing Sydney, The Fight for a City Soul is by Elizabeth Farrelly and published by Picador Australia is out now. I suggest you go and get it if you live in Sydney. It is a very worthwhile read and it's cheaper than a carton of beer. Um, Elizabeth Farrelly, thank you very much for your time. It has been an absolute honour and pleasure and, and I, I, I do hope we shall talk again. Indeed, me too. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, Franco. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.